Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We seldom get much coastal action in this podcast for perfectly obvious reasons. But this week, the sound of seabirds can be heard in the background, the scent of salt in our nostrils, and a breeze blowing gently over us. This week we've crawled up between the non-existent roadworks on the A12 to meet a team of people who are going to be setting about conducting an unusual survey of the Thames this very weekend. A survey of marine life. They've got a sense of porpoise. I just thought I'd get it out of the way. It is Saturday the 7th of March 2015. I'm in Quentin Wolf, and this is Ipswich Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. Hello, hello, listener. We are on water as this episode of Londonist Out Loud begins. And we're not in London at all. We're in Ipswich. For those of you perhaps not familiar with England, Ipswich is about 60, 70 miles east, northeast of London. And for those of you in London, England is a green expanse with villages and towns and it surrounds London. We're here to look at marine life and uh, the uh, specimen of marine life in front of me is Richard McClanagan. He is the director of MCR. He is uh, occasionally the skipper of the boat we're standing on in the marina at Ipswich. Hi Richard. Hi, hi. Thank you for coming to visit us. We must start with what the devil we're doing here. So we're standing on the deck of the research vessel Song of the Whale, uh, which is based out of Ipswich and belongs to the organisation called Marine Conservation Research. Um, Marine Conservation Research is a small non-profit specialising in, as the name implies, in uh, conservation issues around around the marine environment particular area of expertise is the study of whales and dolphins or cetaceans and uh, within within that field our, our sort of core competence is in the use of acoustics so we use the sounds that whales and dolphins make to find the animals, to count them using the sounds, and to track them. And, and, and the reason we do this is because, as, as you'll realise, whales and dolphins spend the majority of their lives underwater. So if you're trying to survey them to, to understand their distribution, uh, merely looking 
with your eyes for an animal that spends most of its time underwater it isn't a very efficient way of working so by trailing hydrophone arrays and those are very sensitive underwater microphones behind the boat we're able to pick up the sounds that they make localize on them count them as i mentioned and, and work out what's going on in the area we work in and the reason we're here in Ipswich is uh, MCR is based locally uh, so this is where we keep the boat but the reason we're talking about London today is we're about to leave Ipswich bound for the Thames estuary and ultimately up up the Thames and into London uh, conducting a harbour porpoise survey and harbour porpoises are a very small relative of the dolphin uh, they're Quite, quite coastal generally speaking and used to be very common in the Thames estuary and even up the river right up the river as, as far as Teddington um, can I just say everybody I've told so far doesn't believe you <laughs> when I mentioned to them a porpoise survey they all said well that's easy none well that's that's fair comment I suppose because as I'm sure you know all Londoners know for, for many years the Thames was very very heavily polluted and at one point in the 50s was declared as being biologically dead um, at which point there were very few fish very few seals or porpoises in the river but in in the ensuing years there's been huge efforts made to clean up the, the river and, and it's now very very clean um, in fact I'm sure Ollie and Anna who you'll meet down below in a little while will talk about the numbers of different species that are now found in in the river of, of cetacean or of, uh, uh, of, of marine of life marine life generally but it's also known that porpoises are now seen from time to time in the river itself and also very definitely in the estuary but but no one has ever done a dedicated survey to see just how many porpoises are using the river and, and if there are specific areas that are kind of hot spots for them so that's what we're embarking on today so this is the first one this is the first survey of its kind and we're hoping that this will become a fairly regular occurrence we're certainly planning to do a second survey um, during the summer months this year we're going to have a poke around the boat in just a moment but you must have had, uh, made some sort of projections as to what you think you're going to find um we, we haven't been quite so brave as to, as to pick a number that we're going to find, but we're pretty confident that we'll, we'll find porpoises in the estuary and, and, and close up into the outer reaches of the river. Quite how far up the river we might find them, we don't know. I mean, there are anecdotal sightings and there are even clips on YouTube that people have filmed from time to time on the river seeing them there but it's not been quantified in any way and that's what we're aiming to to do here is to start the ball rolling on that and also as part of our projects which is common in in all the work we do we're developing an education program as part of it so there'll be some longevity to the project in that we're we're producing education materials we're going into schools um, putting stuff on the web teachers resources that kind of thing we're on a, a strapping and uh, I, I don't imagine cheap piece of equipment here, this beautiful boat. Um, how did this come into being? How did you guys uh, find each other? In the late 80s, I was working in software engineering and, and then switched tack and went off and, and started sailing for a living, um, mostly working on bigger and bigger and very fancy boats and that was all very nice and got to go to some beautiful places. But You, you were doing this for a hobby already or...? Yeah, sailing had always been a hobby, but this was a way of, of starting to make a living doing something that you know I enjoyed doing. Um, and then after a while, it started to feel a little bit pointless, um, and I thought I'd, I'd like to 
sort of marry my interest in conservation with sailing and I heard about the Song of the Whale project which had been running since 1987 and managed through my sailing skills and my background in computing and a little bit of electronics to get myself involved in that project which at the time was run by a large UK based NGO called the International Fund for Animal Welfare Um, I worked with them and I ran uh, the predecessor to this boat uh, and, and, and did that for many years and in 2004 we built and launched this current Song of the Whale which was a replacement from a, an earlier much smaller vessel and then in 2009 I4 restructured um, and at that point uh, myself and other members of the long term Song of the Whale team set up marine conservation research as a consultancy and then later on as a, as a non-profit to continue running the vessel to, to do the various marine research projects that we'd been undertaking under the Eiffel banner for many years. And then during another sort of restructuring last year, Eiffel granted ownership of the vessel to MCR. So we recent, comparatively recently have started in a new chapter of our uh, of our existence. Am, am I right in thinking that's several major goodwill junctions going on there in the, the life of the project? It, it is, it is, and um, you know it's it's quite a big thing, obviously, for those of us still involved in the project and for I for themselves. You know they were keen to as they were sort of changing direction to see the project continue and to hopefully grow. Um, but obviously, it's put us in an interesting situation. We're we're now in. Uh, in a situation where we're on the lookout for funding in a way that we never have had to before so we're looking for individuals and and trusts and corporate sponsorship that kind of thing so uh, it's a whole new world for us well as uh, it it struck me that we're both involved in sounds here sending sound under the water and making noises above water at the moment what would be the sales pitch then in terms of getting funding what is the thing that you're for well we're doing the groundwork for conserving marine species and in particular whales and dolphins although we've worked on other things like sharks and seals over the years and we're we're doing the groundwork for that um, to help sort of forge conservation measures and legislation for future generations so we're basically trying to protect important marine species not just in the UK but worldwide for generations to come. Let's turn our attention to the boat itself. I suppose the first thing I should point out is that the Song of the Whale you know the, the initial reaction when you look at it is to say oh that there's a rather large expensive looking yacht but in fact that that's where the similarities stop I suppose it, it is a sailing boat and it looks a bit like a yacht but it was purpose designed for the for the acoustic research we do and because we work offshore mid-ocean a lot of the time um, and and the focus of our work is is using acoustics as you say it's important that the boat is very quiet so that's why we use a sailing boat not only is it quiet but it's also comparatively cheap to run um is it to the extent that uh, you see on submarine films where you have to keep your voices down while you're working it's not quite that bad but um i mean there would be circumstances where matt who's the engineer who you might have seen wandering around you know if he's pounding away with a hammer at times we, we might have to ask him to be quiet but in terms of <laughs> well you're, you're in there well, that's 20 whales in the last minute that's incredible exactly yeah no it could i mean the the hydrophones are that sensitive that it, w- it would pick that up um 
it, it's much more a case of things like the the engines on here and the generators things like that have all been specially selected and the way they're mounted to the hull and the propeller shaft things like that they're they're all being designed very specifically to minimize the amount of noise we're making and, and transmitting into the marine environment because there's a disturbance aspect that particularly if you're working close to whales but also in terms of actually being able to hear what's going on making a lot of noise yourselves obviously you're not going to hear what else is going on so it's that whole thing from a sociology class that can't forget that the observer affects what's being observed absolutely yes and and from that perspective um part of our ethos is is to promote develop and promote non-invasive techniques so we are very much about sort of standing back and observing rather than sort of being very interventionist so we are more typically you know one, one step further back than others might be i happen to know that hydrophones have been around since the first world war because i know they they're used to pick up the german u-boats in the channel what can we find out about hydrophonic technology what i had in my mind when i asked that i I think specifically is how far can you reach okay so what what we're doing is we're listening we're not transmitting a sound and listening to an echo coming back oh this is all on receive this is all on receive and and that's how submarines would be found as as well a lot of the time is by an operator sitting there you know if you think of the classic films with the chap sat with his hands cupped over his ears we do very much the same sort of thing although and and certainly when i started in 1992 it, it was all sitting concentrating with headphones on these days we have computers doing most of the listening for us but in terms of how far we can hear a whale right that varies very much on this on the species itself so for example with a sperm whale which is the largest of the toothed whales up to sort of 18 to 20 meters we might hear those 15 to 20 kilometers away with the harbour porpoise that we're going out to look for this week a much much smaller animal um, which vocalises at a much higher frequency and higher frequencies don't travel as well we might only hear that out as far as 500 metres but compare that to how far you might be able to spot it visually if there's any kind of sea running that, that still gives you a much better chance of, uh, of detecting the animal acoustically rather than visually. So you've got to have some pretty good idea of, of roughly where to expect to find the animals in the first place? Well, we, and, and Ollie and Anna can talk to you much more about this, but in terms of the way we search for animals, it's, it's very much driven by a statistical methodology of laying out um, survey lines to, to get good coverage of an area. And I don't know if this is an Ollie and Anna question as well, but if you've got a little bunch of uh, porpoises perhaps together a distance away, are you able to tell exactly how many are in that group? We can to a certain extent, and that is more of an Ollie-Anna sort of question, but with, with larger whales that tend to travel in groups that are more widely spread, it's certainly much easier. Um, it's, it's slightly harder to resolve the angles when you've got small animals relatively close to you um, that, that will likely be travelling very close together but they, they can probably show you and talk you through what a porpoise detection looks like uh, Let me plumb your skippering knowledge of the Thames estuary what particular challenges are there going to be for the skipper on uh, that mission? Well, th- th- there's, there's a couple of fundamental issues I suppose one is that there's a lot of sandbanks in the Thames estuary so you've, you've got a number of main shipping channels to work within and this is a fairly deep draft boat that's designed primarily for offshore work so we're quite restricted 
to working within those navigation channels um, and, we, and we've been working closely with the Port of London Authority to agree our survey tracks and through them in making sure that other shipping that's likely to be in the area is aware of what we're doing and we can work together to make sure that we don't get in anyone's way. There are issues of depth as, as we go and we're, we're towing a hydrophone array so we're going to have to vary the length of that accordingly to make sure we're not dragging it along the bottom. Oh, so you've got a trailer on the back of this? The hydrophone is on the end of a long cable. Ah, we're looking at a drum uh, right now, listener, that has, uh, if, if you imagine the television of the 1920s and you'd have your, your big old camera and then a drum of cable behind it. That's what's on the back here. And it's it's almost exactly the same sort of cable. And then at the end of that is the, is the hydrophone itself with the sensitive listening elements what does the hydrophone look like is it there already no. it, it is i can i can show you what it looks like and we can we can describe it so within within this oil filled tube there are wrapped in a piece of sponge here there's a very sensitive ceramic element which is basically the microphone and then the wire here is just feeding that into the tow cable coming up and, and fed into the computer room down below that we'll look at in a minute and that's where the sound is being processed so normally when we're working offshore these would be towing 400 meters behind the boat and at about a depth of 40 meters well, obviously in the thames estuary is fairly shallow in certain points so we will be towing a much much shorter cable down to just 20 meters in some places and particularly up in the busier parts of the river so combine that with the porpoises smaller weedier voices then this is a precision operation it, it is yes it, it is um there's, there's a lot goes into this um well is there anything else we need to know about the uh, about the boat itself before we head below deck well yeah so i've been emphasizing the acoustic side of our work but we do do visual observations as well and somewhat unusually for a boat like this we have a large tower on the close to the stern of the vessel and we have we'll have three people standing up there during daylight hours on this trip and they'll they'll be looking out for porpoises and other marine life Um, there's a lot of seals to be found in uh, in the thames estuary and in fact one of our partners on this project is zsl zoological society of london and they run a porpoise sorry a a seal survey in the estuary and we'll be working with them and have some of their team on board so we'll be logging sightings of seals as well and then in in some situations we also have someone posted in a much higher observation platform which is halfway up the mast Um, but we won't be using that for this particular survey (laughs) I know, I know you've got some interns with you. I bet they all, all want to be volunteering to be crow's nest people. Hopefully. I mean, quite often, even when we're just in harbour, people want to go up there just to go and try it out and see what the view's like. So, uh. <laughs> Well, without further ado, let's move below decks and see what's going let's, on there. Let's make our way down and try not to bash our heads on the way in. The clunking noise you're about to hear, listener, is me bashing my head on the way in. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. So down we come, and there are computer screens showing uh, emails. This doesn't look very scientific. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, this station's much better. This has got dials and uh, compasses. Okay, so over on... This is our main working area, although we have 
um, a copy of a lot of the gear that's down here is replicated up on deck so we don't have to keep dashing up and down to for navigation purposes or for data entry for the for the scientific observations but what we have here this is the the primary navigation station so this is where all our navigation instruments and our communications equipment is housed so it's where brian who's skipped for this trip will spend much of his time and it looks it looks far simpler than i could have imagined i, I suspect that may be uh, deceptive though we've got a bank of switches with lights on the right and a pc like you might find at home and then a, a couple of compasses uh, essentially it seems yes. too easy yeah no it is it's uh, it's much more straightforward in many ways than it was years ago you know everything's been nicely integrated into lots of sophisticated electronics but uh, so long as all that's working then uh, it's, all should be well and good i want to ask brian something may i ask you something of course i've often thought this about bus drivers and we've just been talking about the uh, liaison with the port of london authority and making sure that the route's all planned out and so forth do you ever just want to go on stop this foot down yeah occasionally you do um sometimes there's a lot of rules and regulations that you need to follow that you can't really see why yourself and like you say we could just go there but yeah particularly when you're going to be in the Thames for quite a long time it makes sense to get on with them and try and follow the rules Mm. (laughs) I've just realised where my question might have come from having come up the A12 with uh, 40 mile hour restrictions for non-existent roadworks I I think I'm bitter (laughs) what's in the cupboard here? this cupboard is our computer room Um, this is Ollie who's the sort of senior scientist with MCR and is leading the research on this project. Uh, this is Oliver Boisseau. That's right. Hi. Um, you're clutching a piece of equipment here that... Uh, this looks like the, the back of a mainframe computer. Uh, essentially, yes. So what we're looking at at the moment in our computer room is a stack of computers. They're just standard desktop PCs that you could buy in any high street shop. And we've rigged them up with a series of uh, buffer boxes, amplifiers, filters for all of our signal processing so when Richard showed you the hydrophone on deck the underwater microphone that essentially gets plumbed in here below decks to the computer room and so this bank of flashing lights we're looking at is where that signal will get processed fed through to our computers uh, and a lot of the grunt work now is automated so a lot of the 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 nuts and bolts of what we're doing which is trying to detect the vocalisations of these animals when they're below the surface a lot of that work is done by bits of software we've developed over the last 20 or so years. So it basically makes our job a lot easier in that we can rely on the computers to try and find the animals for us. Uh, but how, how, how far does it go? Can it tell you, you know, that's, that's a porpoise, uh, that's something else? Yeah, so for certain species it's very effective. So fortunately for us, porpoises, harbour porpoises, make a very specific type of sound. So their echolocation clicks are ultrasonic so they're above human hearing so when we're towing our hydrophone in the water behind us and if we listen to that audio stream with headphones we can't actually hear the porpoises directly so we do rely on the computers to do that uh, filtering and deciphering for us Uh, but fortunately harbour porpoises produce these echolocation clicks in a very specific frequency band about 130 kilohertz and there isn't many other things out there in the water column that produce clicks at that frequency so in a way porpoises are very easy to work with the downside of having a very high frequency system such as the porpoises is that uh, the system is very directional so that there's not much power in their clicks and it's very directional so if they turn towards our hydrophone 
and are within maybe 500 meters we will be able to pick up their clicks but if they turn away from us we'll probably lose them and also if they're more than 500 meters or so we probably won't be able to pick them up so so that's the downside of working with acoustics is that it depends on the species but sometimes if they're orientated away from us they get a little bit harder to track but we found over the years this system is much more effective particularly for things like porpoises they're very small they're very inconspicuous they don't leap out of the water like dolphins they're very undemonstrative they're very unshowy uh, they're quite small they don't have a big dorsal fin like some of the dolphins so anyway they're, they're very difficult to see and on a flat calm day so today here in Ipswich it's actually quite calm on the water but it maybe when we get down the Thames there's a bit more slop there's a bit more swell um, may even be raining and then it becomes very hard to see things uh, particularly these small inconspicuous creatures at the surface so then we really do rely primarily Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Early on our acoustics to find them. I've got more acoustic questions, but you haven't really sold the porpoises to me. They sound a bit dull, to be honest. Are they, are they endangered themselves? Is that why we're concerning ourselves with this particular species? Yeah, harbour porpoises face a number of quite acute conservation threats. So porpoises themselves are found throughout the Northern Hemisphere, and they're actually found in, in most European waters. As the name implies, they are creatures of coastal waters, the harbour porpoise, so they do come into harbours, estuaries, lagoons. Is, is that a good move for their own safety? Uh, it's, it's certainly good in terms of foraging because the, the species, the fish they're trying to eat, basically live in these in certain areas, quite shallow waters and often near sandbanks and mudflats. So um, they're very much restricted in where they can and can't go. Oddly, for such a small species, they're maybe one and a half metres maximum length, so it's quite small, smaller than an uh, average adult, I suppose. They actually prefer cooler waters, which is odd because normally in the wild, mammals prefer smaller creatures, prefer warmer regions, and then the bigger animals prefer the slightly cooler areas, or they can tolerate those cooler areas. So, so the porpoise is a little bit unusual, and then it goes into the cooler waters to feed. So they're really living at the edge of their thermal limit, so they need to spend almost all their time foraging, looking for food. So that's partly why they're not quite as exciting, perhaps, as their cousins, the dolphins. They're, because bu they're busy. They're busy, yeah. They're getting on with life, they're feeding. The dolphins have a bit more time to, to play and uh, frolic around. So, so they're very much limited in what they can and can't do, porpoises. But then on top of that, they they tend to get, unfortunately, entangled in fishing nets, certain type of fishing nets. And again, it seems to be they're so focused on foraging, they're so focused on finding food, that they'll accidentally blunder into nets, certain types of nets, bottom-set gill nets, which are basically nets on the seabed. Um, and it just seems they're so distracted by the fish, their prey, they're moving in on their quarry. And then for some reason, their echolocation system, their sonar system fails, and they blunder into the nets. And because they're mammals like us, they breathe air. If they get caught in a net, they'll unfortunately die if they can't get to the surface. So despite these porpoises being found throughout Europe, uh, they actually do face these acute conservation threats, primarily from fishing. Um, 
and there are other threats to them such as noise so if if there are more porpoises coming to the Thames which we hope is the case um, there's a lot of construction noise there's obviously noise related related to vessels coming and going so increasingly not just in river systems like the Thames but around the world noise anthropogenic or man-made noise is becoming more of an issue we're introducing more and more water into the water column we're introducing more and more noise into the water column sorry and that is uh, causing problems not just with whales and dolphins but also all types of marine life so even fish eggs can get damaged uh, by certain types of anthropogenic noise in the water column so the porpoises do face a number of threats and they are listed under various international uh, legislations they are afforded a particular protection so within European waters the harbour porpoise is afforded a higher level of protection I, I don't know whether this steps on any political sensitivities what are your thoughts on the uh, fishing industry the fishing techniques that are going on fishing practices I should say well we I mean groups like ourselves at, at MCR we always try to work as closely as possible with the fishing industry so instead of us or or other campaigning bodies pointing the finger waving the finger at the fishing industry it's much better to to try and resolve these problems uh, in a way that benefits both us and the animals both humans and the animals uh, and there are certain measures uh, that have been adopted in certain regions so this this problem with bycatch the porpoises getting entangled in the nets uh, is quite a big problem in the Baltic Sea for example slightly uh, more remote region from here uh, but similar weather at times uh, and and there's a number of the fisheries and the fishermen uh, the fishers put on uh, what are called pingers these acoustic devices onto the nets which in theory as the name implies ping as they ping and the, and the idea is that these sonic pings will alert the porpoises to the presence of the nets potentially even uh, scare them away from certain areas and so the the jury's out but that this approach has met with some success so there is evidence that the porpoises do stay away from these nets um, so that's an area of potential interest in terms of managing this problem this interaction between fisheries and porpoises but we're slightly wary that in certain areas uh, for example up in Scotland there's there's uh, numerous uh, salmon farms for example and again there sometimes the fishermen use these pingers to this time to actually scare seals away uh, but at the same principle applies so the seals stay away from the salmon don't steal any of the salmon but the concern is with so many of these fish farms in in quite narrow confines it could actually exclude porpoises for example from a really important habitat essentially if you went to the canteen every lunchtime and there was a jackhammer working in the street and you decided you didn't want to eat your lunch there very quickly you might get hungry if you can go to the canteen so we, we well, you've, got, to... you've got to feel sorry for the salmon <laughs> well that's right yeah they've got a tough tough deal as well um but they, they have slightly different acoustic sensitivities so again with these pingers or these um uh, acoustic harassment devices as they're sometimes called they're they're tailor-made for the species of interest so, so this is this is like the mosquito noise to get uh, teenagers to move away yeah exactly exactly right they're, they can be tailored to specific creatures and the specific uh, sensitivities so so anyway there, there is scope for some some more positive uh, approach to this conflict the, the bycatch problem 
for uh, reasons of correctness, I should say, I think the uh, London Underground, I don't think they did. I think they used classical music instead, which, <laughs> which, on which you, you can have that idea on me. How <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can use it for the purposes. <laughs> what else is acoustically down there that you could be listening into? You mentioned the various uh, man-made noises, but on the, the sort of uh, end of the spectrum that you're thinking of, what other sounds might you come across? Well, many of the more shallow coastal regions, such as uh, the estuary and, and working upriver into the Thames, we do tend to get a lot of crustaceans, shrimps, we call them clicking shrimps, certain types of shrimp or little crustaceans do produce clicking sounds. Um, and you'd imagine a tiny little shrimp buried away in the mud would actually be very quiet. But surprisingly, uh, almost all the biological noise we can detect is, is dominated by snapping shrimp. Uh, these small crustaceans in in shallow areas a lot of our work is in off slightly more remote areas offshore ocean habitats and there we won't hear a single snapping shrimp but coming up somewhere like the s3 and the river thames we will hear a lot of snapping shrimp and in a way they have their own beauty because it's like a little symphony of uh, it's like pouring your breakfast oat milk and your breakfast cereal in the morning and hearing snap crackle and pop it is it is like that uh, or or frying bacon perhaps in a frying pan this hissing popping sound it's and it's quite nice in a way it's just nice to hear um creatures out there even if it's not quite the species we're interested in the porpoise i'd, I'd love to hear it have we got any uh, samples or any way to hear uh, under the water yes we do i we can play a recording of the porpoise perhaps more appropriately yeah, uh, so let me just get that ready for you uh probably over here is the best place so this is an echolocation train from a harbour porpoise. So the, these are the sounds they produce to find their prey, so to feed, and also to navigate and even to socialise. So they essentially use the same words, if you like, over and over again for lots of different things, for finding their way around, for playing, for socialising. I know a lot of people who do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is what you're going to be... This is the soundtrack to your weekend. Exactly. So this is what... Not so much what we're listening out for, but this is what the computers on board are going to be listening out for. Yeah, so that is actually... Uh, we've had to modify that slowly so we can hear it. So we've, we've dropped the frequency down. Humans... Well, young young people tend to hear up to about 20 kilohertz is the upper limit of our hearing. The clicks we were listening to then from porpoises would have been produced at about 120 kilohertz ultrasonic. So we've obviously had to shift down the frequency for us to be able to hear them. Uh, now, it didn't really sound like individual clicks, but I can assure you, if we slow that right down, you would hear the individual pings essentially coming out from the porpoise's melon. So the way the cetaceans... Sorry, from the porpoises, what? The porpoises, melons. So the way the cetaceans, the whales and dolphins, uh, over the millennia, they've evolved quite a unique way of interacting with the world. So for us, humans, our primary uh, sense or or a way of interacting with the world is through our eyes, really. So we're very visual creatures. Uh, and many of our other senses are largely secondary. Those of us that have cats or dogs at home, for example, uh, they are often use the, using their olfactory sense or their nose so they can smell smell things. And if you see a dog or a cat following a, a trail, you, you'll see exactly what's going on there. For the whales and dolphins, it's all about the acoustic world. So they often live in quite murky waters. They're not necessarily clean, pristine Caribbean-type waters, particularly somewhere like the River Thames that could potentially be quite murky. 
also these animals don't really sleep traditionally like we we would or our cats and dogs would they tend to be active 24 hours a day with short bursts of uh, sleep like rest so they need to forage and find their way around at night when it's dark so obviously they can't really rely on their eyes then so they're almost entirely reliant on their acoustic sense so over the years they've developed a very specific and sensitive bit of kit so they actually project noise through their forehead or their melon so if you look at a if you think of a kind of quintessential characteristic dolphin for example and they have quite a big bulbous forehead that's actually a fatty tissue that they use to focus a sound beam forward so they produce uh, a click for example or a whistle in the case of a dolphin Uh, in the air sacs that run throughout the front of their head this fatty tissue acts as a lens much like we use the lens in our eye to focus light beams they use the lens of their melon to focus the sound beam forward into the water column the sound will propel forward if it's a click for example their sonar uh, a click will travel forward hit a fish for example get bounced back now that returning echo will actually get transmitted up through the jawbone of the animal's head so again they have uh, a very fine porcelain-like bone structure they've got very fine bones in their lower jaw but they're again packed with this fatty tissue which acts as a very good propagator to transmit noise up to their uh, their inner ear so unlike us they don't have great big flaps hanging out the side of their head like us and our cats and dogs Uh, they don't have external ears because they need to be streamlined in the water but they do have the the inner ear or the very centre of the hearing system is essentially the same as ours so uh, there are some the nuts and bolts of the hearing system are the same as ours they produce a sound and then they hear it with their inner ear but it's just the pathway they use to deliver sound and receive sound are completely different so imagine us if we spoke through our forehead and listened through our mouth uh, that's essentially what a, a harbour porpoise is doing I've been sitting here imagining exactly that and it's made me see uh, the porpoise and the dolphin in an entirely different way and there was something you said about dolphins there I thought dolphins were renowned for their clicks and you, you're saying they whistle that's right so the almost all of the the toothed whales produce echolocation clicks so there's a there's a big split if you like a big rift in the world of the cetaceans or or uh, whales and dolphins uh, what we traditionally think of as whales uh, are actually the baleen whales or the great whales. So the baleen whales, rather than teeth, they have baleen in their mouth, which is, are like great curtains of this great fibrous mass. It's actually keratin, the same material that our fingernails are made of. But in, in the mouth of a baleen whale, it will form as these great curtains. That, and they're filter feeders, so they actually use these, these curtains as a sieve plankton and so forth exactly so they'll they'll gulp in the great thousands of litres of water with each gulp and sieve out these tiny little crustaceans the tiny little shrimp and that's primarily their diet now that means the these baleen whales are they need to feed in areas where there's massive aggregations of these krill and that typically only occurs in the summer months in the high latitude areas the north pole the south pole so these baleen whales uh, are pretty much confined to undertaking a vast migration so sometimes if people go on holiday to certain areas they might see migrating whales we tend to see less of it in the UK but in certain areas like of California for example 
you can visit certain headlands at certain times of the year, South Africa, and see these great beasts migrating up and down the coast. And they're actually heading from the tropical breeding grounds to these summer feeding grounds. And there's about 20 species of these great whales that do take that path. The rest, the other 60, 70 or so other species are the toothed whales. So instead of the baleen, instead of the curtains in their mouth, they have teeth. Uh, similar to our teeth but they tend to be very sharp conical teeth so we have a whole mix of different types of teeth in our mouth they just have one type of tooth uh, these very sharp conical teeth because they are primarily interested in just grabbing fish or squid from the water column and generally swallowing them whole so there isn't much chewing going on so they don't need molars for example like us um but anyway, it means because they have a very different... These toothworms have a very different way of feeding. It means they need a different way of finding their food. So they all rely on their sonar, their echolocation clicks to find the food. Um, they tend to feed in tight groups, often family groups. And so therefore certain species have developed a whole range of social signals. Um, and many people are probably aware of uh, the squawks and squeaks and whistles of things like dolphins and killer whales um, those those animals if they're kept in captivity for example they can be heard quite quite easily in the tanks uh, they're often encouraged to produce this wide re- repertoire of sounds um, but in the wild we find they do also have this remarkable range of sounds they can produce and they're most, mostly for social interaction so it may be that uh, certain types of call are used in uh, aggressive situations. So if two males are fighting, competing, they'll probably produce a certain type of aggressive sound. Yeah, a mother in a car, for example, a mother with a young will produce uh, what's called a signature whistle. So a certain type of whistle that the calf can very easily identify as coming from the mother. So it helps prevent the two animals getting separated. Um, certain types of sound are produced when they're foraging. Uh, feeding because they often feed cooperatively, they often feed in a, in a large group and they often help each other feed, so some animals within a group, some of the dolphins will corral the fish, herd the fish while others come through and grab them and, and they seem to have quite a good society in place whereby everyone gets a chance or every dolphin gets a chance to whiz in, grab the fish, move on herd the fish so they've, they've evolved quite a good social system but it relies on them having this very elaborate uh, communication system as well we know uh, any Star Trek fan knows that humpback whales can communicate with uh, spaceships from the past well, well, well of course I mean that's a well known scientific fact London's most famous recent uh, cetacean experience was uh, a sad one the whale who came up the Thames and um, didn't go back down the Thames what was that whale's mission do you think well, that was a very interesting story. That, the whale in question uh, was originally called Willie, I think, but then they realised that it wasn't actually the most appropriate name. It was, it was a female northern bottlenose whale. So uh, this species of whale are very rare visitors to the UK. They tend to be found only in the very deep waters. They're really deep divers. They can dive to over 2,000 metres and hold their breath for up to an hour. So again, it's very, it's a, an avenue that the cetaceans, the whales and dolphins have exploited. And it seems very hard for us to imagine diving for an hour to 2,000 metres. But some of these deep divers, they're called beaked whales. The group of animals are called beaked whales because they are whales with beaks, essentially. 
The northern bottlenose whale is one of those species. So typically it would be in very deep waters, a long way offshore, so perhaps uh, more towards Iceland. So halfway between the UK and Iceland, the water starts to get very deep. Or to the west of uh, the Outer Hebrides, for example, the, these animals are sometimes seen there. But it's very unusual for a whale like that to come down. It must have come down the east coast of the UK and made a wrong turn at some point and gone into the Thames. So it may be that the animal was lost or disorientated or confused. Um, the, the jury's still out, but occasionally we do get these slightly odd uh, sightings or these slightly odd um, uh, sightings of creatures that are out of season or out of their traditional home range. Um, sometimes it's a good sign. Sometimes that means actually the po- a population is really healthy if the population is growing to such an extent that it's typically the younger members of the community start ranging off and looking for a place to call home. Uh, but sometimes it can be a bit alarming. And so that was a slightly sad story because that was a species that probably shouldn't have been coming down the North Sea. It really was in the wrong place and certainly at the wrong time. And I should say, by the way, as this broadcast goes to air, you will be in the Thames estuary or up the Thames because this is going out this weekend uh, so people could be looking out for your green flag fluttering over the boat what will be a sign for you that uh, from a conservation point of view things are looking good well we're actually overjoyed that there are porpoises being seen anyway harbour porpoises being seen in in the Thames because 60 or so years ago the river Thames was declared biologically dead now with successive efforts to clean up the Thames everyone's made a sterling effort there are now for example over 120 species of fish now using the river so it's gone from being dead to harbouring 120 species of fish just to put that in some kind of perspective uh, the Nile the longest river system in the world also supports 120 species of fish and that's 6,000 kilometres long. So we, we've done really well. We should be really proud with what we've done with our river. Uh, it's one of the cleanest waterways in a metropolis in the world. So to be frank, any sighting of a charismatic mammal, such as a harbour porpoise or, or seals, grey seals and common seals, have been seen uh, increasingly regularly in the River Thames as well, coming, coming in on the mudflats. So any, any signs like that actually are a great victory, a great conservation victory. So really the purpose of this survey is to be trying to get a, get a feel for exactly how many there are and where they are. And that's really the first uh, stepping stone, if you like, in working towards preserving the River Thames as a habitat for harbour porpoises, for, not for, only for themselves but also for us, for future generations. It would be great if... Uh, people in London and our children and our grandchildren can look out on a sunny day and see a harbour porpoise cruising up the Thames. What a fantastic sight. And of course you'll I'm sure be doing all the social media stuff as you uh, head along the river. Can people follow you on Twitter and Facebook and those things? Yes, so our uh, webpage is www.marineconservationresearch.org all one word and people can follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, we're encouraging as many people this weekend to get out and about in London looking for porpoises. So we um, are arranging a number of observation schemes along the course of the Thames on the Saturday. And then this Sunday we'll be having an open day on the boat at uh, Hermitage Community Moorings, which is in Wapping. So we're encouraging people to come along. We'll be running the open day from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the Sunday. 
so anyone that wants to come and learn a little bit more about our work to meet us to to see the vessel to perhaps listen to some porpoises we've recorded on the way in up the river thames we'd be we'd be glad to to have people on board and I, I can testify that the crew aboard tour person is a smiley friendly crew extremely approachable exactly the sort of people that you'd want looking after the marine life of the thames oliver Boisse, thanks very much you're welcome And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Richard McLanagan and Oliver Boisseau. Thanks too to Anna Cutlaw, Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea, quite appropriately. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Time.